You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, I bring back by popular demand an expert digital asset attorney, Joe Carlosari. And we also have my good friend and resident realist with American HODL. These two are the perfect mix to cover the Binance and Coinbase battle currently taking place against the SEC. This was a really fun and very enlightening conversation. Uh, so sit back, relax, and uh, let's enjoy this one together. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by the Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. This one's going to be an exciting one. I got HODL here and I got Joe Carlosari. We're talking Binance, Coinbase, the SEC, and everything else in between. Where do we start here, fellas? Uh, <laughs> this one's a whopper. So, Joe, do you want to take it away and just kind of provide your overview of what you've seen brewing and then what was actually dropped? And then maybe like just kind of a, a current status of, of where everything's at. Yeah, I'm just going to frame it and then we'll break it down piece by piece. Okay. I can tell you, I've, I've been litigating and handling cases in the space since 2015. Uh, it was the first time I had anybody that was remotely related to Bitcoin, was working on some cases in Chicago on it. I can tell you that in the t- entire time I've spent monitoring the space, watching cases be filed, regulatory actions, statements from policy officials. I don't remember as consequential or as important a week as the last, you know, seven to 10 days, roughly. Let's just go over the, the broad strokes. Number one, you've had major, major litigation filed against the number one US exchange, Coinbase, right? And we knew this was coming for weeks, months now, since basically the Wells notice got issued, which basically said you're under investigation for a potential violation of some securities laws. And there will be a complaint coming likely in the near future. Submit what you want, but our minds are effectively made up. So we've got the Coinbase action. And then you've got even more significant, in my opinion, is what's going on in a case against Binance, where there are portions of the Coinbase action that are copy and pasted right into Binance. But you also have all these additional allegations about commingling of user funds and wash trading and not monitoring your platform and using US-based accounts to move money in and out of the United States and controlling a US entity, which you're claiming publicly you have no involvement of. And there's a, basically a, a bifurcation and a wall between the two. So you've got major pieces of litigation. And on top of it, like a minor story in the litigation front is this action by 11 separate states where they issued uh, rule to show causes for cease and desist orders about selling um, unregistered securities on your platform in the case of Alabama, Illinois, and many other states. So you've got that whole piece of it, right? Then you've got this document dump from documents going back you know, multiple years ago when this speech was given by Director Hinman, where he introduces this concept of sufficiently decentralized, which previously had no precedent under US law, right? the idea that something could start out as a security, an unregistered offering, and somehow morph into something else. And all the documents show confusion and a lot of questioning at the SEC. And then on top of all that, then you get this additional fight that continues to go on with Coinbase, where they're petitioning the Third Circuit for something called a writ of mandamus, which is effectively a rulemaking position trying to get out in front of the public narrative and trying to convince people that you need to act government, you need to put in new rules, and the current rules for this space are insufficient. So you've got all of this blowing up. You've got, obviously, 
issues in legacy markets, which are sort of related and liquidity issues that we can we can talk about how that may or may not be affecting some of the crypto basic issues. But man, blockbuster all over the place. And on top of all the litigation filed, you've got the TRO hearing as of just a day ago that we talked about, Preston, very briefly about literally orders to freeze Binance assets. So I'll leave that to Hoddle to unpack how he wants to pull on that thread of uh, <laughs> tons of stuff going on. There's so much there. And I think to me, it's like none of it is surprising. I've been in the space now for eight and a half years, and I think all of this was expected. Now, it all happening in one fell swoop, I think, was certainly like, wow, we're in the, we're in the center of the, the hurricane here. But to me, I look at the moves that Gary Gensler made and SEC enforcement made, and they were very well telegraphed. I mean, basically, he told you over and over again, repeatedly, like, I, in my view, in the view of the agency, these things are all illegal securities offerings. And, you know, some people will say, well, wasn't he capricious about the Bitcoin spot ETF? And it's like, no, if you, if you read through the documents, like I've gone through with Joe before, you look through the documents and he says, basically, listen, we need surveillance agreements between these shady offshore exchanges, things like Binance, who, yeah, while they may have U.S. surrogates, I mean, it's a wink and a nod to U.S. consumers while they're advertising during the Super Bowl that says, hey, yeah, Binance U.S., whatever. Really, you're one VPN away from the really good stuff. And if you just get a VPN, then you can trade on 100x leverage and you can trade illiquid, illegal securities. And that was just a bridge too far for the agency. And they finally came in and enforced and did something about it. And obviously, the way you're going to do enforcement is you're going to go after the bottlenecks. And the bottlenecks, what are they? They're the exchanges. They're the Binances, the Coinbases, the FTXs. That's the easy pickings. That's the low-hanging fruit for them. Can I, can I share something, guys? Real quick? Yeah. That's yeah. really funny on this. Okay. So to, exactly to your point, Hoddle, there's this hearing that, that goes on, right, uh, yesterday. And it's with Judge Amy Berman Jackson, federal court judge, right? They're kind of like, many of them think that they, uh, they breathe rarefied air, right? They have the ability to literally stop presidential orders with some of their rulings. So she has this emergency hearing and she's questioning the Binance lawyers. And I, I highlighted this part. I thought it was funny. She brings them in. And it's basically, you know, saying, okay, you've got serious claims here. Let's figure out how to deal with this. Let's figure out how to protect customer assets. We need to do this immediately on a temporary restraining order. And then she says, makes this comment. She says, uh, you know, some of your claims that you're shocked the SEC thinks you're dealing in securities, they, they ring a little hollow. Uh, the surprise you're expressing, especially in light of CZ's statements over the years, she's saying, and the fact that SEC banned Binance from doing business in the United States in 2019, this appears to be an extension of that and overlapping uh, ownerships and relationships. Uh, so she's basically, she's going in there literally questioning and saying, how are you guys realistically saying you're shocked that this enforcement was coming, right? Literally, like it's been all over the papers. It's been in every public statement, every public interview that he's given. Gary Gensler says, I look around at these exchanges and I see nothing but unregistered securities. I mean, isn't that really kind of uh, a little absurd to go out and say you're shocked that the SEC is filing suits? And by the way, Coinbase, by extension, is saying some of the same stuff with their public statements about how they're so surprised that the SEC would go down this path. Well, you also have this video that surfaced of Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, saying that he had a conversation with, was it Ginsler or the SEC, and they informed him a year ago that... There's Bitcoin and then everything else is a security was like he communicated in a recent video that he was in. This was disclosed to him a year ago. 
Oh yeah. So this is the disingenuous nature of some of these arguments. And I, and I really think it's a PR campaign at this point, guys. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just take public statements. Let's take them at their own words. So there's no debate. Brian Armstrong said in his own public statements on Twitter that he has met with the FCC 30 times. So whoever's saying, you know, that they won't sit down with them or give them a meeting, that's total nonsense because Brian Armstrong is saying we have met with them and sat down 30 times. Okay. And then you now know that Brian Armstrong's taking the position. Well, they won't give us a path to register. They won't give us a path to compliance. So how do you reconcile those two statements combined with Gary Gensler's statements that everything in your platform is a security? I'm not in those meetings. I don't know for sure, but just speculating being in similar meetings, what happened in the meetings where, where they said, listen, you're not going to violate the law and come in here and beg for forgiveness and ask for us to give you an easy path to become compliant. We're not going to do that. If you want to get compliant, remove it from your platform, seek proper registrations, don't come after you violated things and beg for forgiveness. And we're not just going to you know, slap you on the wrist. So that's what happened. And if you're Coinbase and your business model is built on trying to push these things on the public, and that's how you make profit, there's no way you're going to give that up, right? Instead, you're just going to complain about how you don't like the rules. And this is the confusion in this space. They're shifting the narrative from there's no regulatory framework. They're trying to push there's no regulatory framework we don't know, when in reality, they just don't like the current framework. And they're trying to move around it. That's yeah. that's a major distinction. So there's, yeah, there's so much to unpack here. So let's just go through a little bit of it. In the old days, right, in the early 2000s, traditional tech VC was basically like, you know, you planted a bunch of seeds and most of them were going to go to zero or near zero. And you might have one unicorn in there, but you weren't going to get liquidity on that unicorn for a decade, right? It was a really hard game to play. So when these token economics came in, when in 2017, when the ICO era popped up, you basically had this incentive mechanism where the key phrase that the VCs were using was short time to liquidity. This was all throughout the valley and all on Sand Hill Road. Everybody was saying it. If you came in with a startup idea and your pitch deck didn't have a token in it, it was suggested heavily to you that you add a token to it because that token allowed the VCs to take liquidity directly out of the public markets day one. And then they didn't have to go for the ride. They didn't have to take the risk, right? And so this was a panacea for Silicon Valley VC. I mean, Mm. this fixed the the core thing that was wrong with their industry. So you can see why they were so heavily geared up behind it. Now, you have this problem. The SEC has a big problem with what's going on. And they deemed all of this behavior illegal securities. And they say, listen, we went through this in the 1920s. And we know what is and is not a security contract. And it doesn't matter that you slapped a bunch of digital mumbo jumbo on it. These are still at base level regulated securities that, and you need to come in and you can't do this anymore. This was unpalatable to the Sandhill VCs, the guys like Andreessen Horowitz and A16Z. And they basically said, you know what? We're going to do a regulatory end run around Gary Gensler and the SEC. And in fact, this went so far that they were actually uh, championing a new enforcement agency that would allow them to continue to play three-card Monty with the general public. Now, this is something, obviously, that was a bridge too far, and it went on and got so big post the liquidity that came in after COVID that it had to be shut down eventually. But you can see why the VCs thought that an Uber-style approach, right, where you basically, you break all the rules, you, you do what Joe was talking about, you come in and ask for forgiveness after the fact, they thought that this was going to be their best shot forward And this was an all out blitz from them. They bought lobbyists in D.C. They did everything they could to try and get the SEC to see their view. And if the SEC was not going to see their view, then they wanted a new agency which would see their view. Obviously, this was never going to be allowed to take place because 
The SEC is not a paper tiger like the taxicab authority. The SEC is a strong financial regulator, and they're going to come in and clean your clock. And it took them a long time to do so, but they finally did so. And I think they had a lot of tailwinds on this. Like, for instance, you know, with rideshare, yeah, the taxicab authorities didn't like it. Local authorities didn't like it, but riders loved it. Well, retail investors got hosed during this last cycle, and they got hosed in 2017. And, you know, it seems like basically twice was enough for most people. And if you look at the polling on, you know, cryptocurrency, it's negative basically across the board because the public, it took them two cycles, but they finally got wise to the game that was being played. And they realized that they were the suckers at the table. Dang. So Jason and I talked about back when, before FTX blew up, you had Sam Bankman-Fried there working the hill and getting the CFTC to have a much larger, stronger position. To Hoddle's point there, was this all part of the VC like charade that was being played to circumnavigate the SEC? Or is this, was that because I mean, it, Jason was very scared about like what was basically being brewed out of SBF's antics on the Hill. This is probably two months before FTX collapsed, uh, where everybody on the Hill was basically taking money from the guy. He was shaping the regulatory side, the laws that were being, or not the laws, but the, the bills that were being shaped. Was that what was happening, Joe, in your opinion or HODL? Like what was, what was, where was that something completely different? To touch on that real quick, I think we can get to Binance from there because something that happened during the FTX debacle was, yeah, Sam Bankman-Fried was donating to both parties across the aisle. And he had also promised up to, I think, a billion dollars, which was reported in the headlines for the 2024 election. So this guy was a major player in Washington and basically everybody had taken money from him. Okay. So when FTX blew up, there were a lot of very powerful people that had a lot of egg on their face. And that's never a good thing. Now, if you remember, the way this blew up was on Twitter. And where do the political elite hang out? They hang out on Twitter. So this, was, this happened in the public square in full view in front of everybody. And the perception was, whether this was right or wrong, the perception was that CZ Binance okay, took Sam Bankman-Fried out in the middle of the street and shot him in the head. That's what everybody saw on Twitter. That's what people in Washington saw. And when you do something like that, you paint an extremely large target on your back. And there had been investigations uh, into CZ Binance from U.S. regulators beforehand. But now it was like, the game is on. We are coming for this guy. We're going to get this guy. I'll just tell you, I do not think these cases would have been filed if they would have gotten a bill through Congress, some sort of crypto omnibus bill. And as Hoddle knows, I've been saying this for months, that I think that the green light to file these litigations, which just so happened to coincide with the collapse of FTX and a lot of upset investors and a lot of politicians who had A on their face for through associations with FTX and with, with SBF, they said, okay, we need to do something now. You regulators go take care of it. We're going to do what's best as politicians, you know, pretend like we're doing something and not, not actually do anything, right? That, that's the genesis of it because there was real optimism from the more pro-crypto lawyers and more pro-crypto lobbyists in the space that we could really get something done in 2022, that SBF was throwing money you know, through lobbyists to try to manipulate the Congress into doing something. And there were a lot of very positive pro-crypto bills that had support, bipartisan support you know, among Republicans and Democrats. But again, once it all blew up, I think that all fizzled and they said, okay, take the gloves off, go get them SEC, CFTC, DOJ. Let's also not forget that a valid criticism that the, you know, the crypto guys who are rightfully very upset at Gary Gensler might have against Gary Gensler is that he was real cozy with that whole FTX thing that was happening. And there was actually talk, it never went through, but there was talk of FTX getting safe harbor treatment for what we now know to be absolute insane 
It's worse than Enron. The guy who took over said it's worse than Enron. So imagine giving safe harbor to a, a shady offshore exchange run by millennial drug addicts that's worse than Enron. It's absolute craziness. And he would know. <laughs> right. right. Well, so these are these were super high powered VCs that we're talking about here that had all these investments that were trying to just I love the Uber example because I think it's a perfect example that everybody can understand where they're just trying to move so fast that they just outflank the the regulators. But when we think about the revolving door between high-powered financiers and government bodies like the SEC, I guess I'm surprised to see them come down, especially when you have such high-powered uh, people at play here, like Andreessen Horowitz. Like, my lord! And I mean, they're just—they're just one of many that were involved in this this total scam with "quote unquote" crypto. Do you guys are you surprised that they're coming down so hard, considering the people that are at play, or do the no. rest of the people that are the participants in the market, the the traditional financiers, the Wall Streeters, are leading the charge against some of these VCs? To me, I think it's obvious that there is sort of a covert cultural war going on between elites in America. And it's very East Coast, West Coast. Mm. It's very old money, new money, right? Mm. And I think this was the, you know, East Coast traditional elite establishment basically saying no to the West Coast. Like, no, you do not get your own rule sets. You do not do rulemaking. We do rulemaking. And they basically cracked the whip on them. So to me, it was expected. It was always going to end this way because the power is still in New York. It's not in Mm. uh, Silicon Valley. Joe, there's some Ripple stuff that's been brewing too. I know when you went down through your overview, does Ripple play the the case that's been ongoing there? Does that play into any of this as kind of a precursor to what they need for case law or anything like that? Let's tackle this a couple of ways. So just just to clear the record, okay, about the SEC and their success rate. You know, they filed more than 150 cryptocurrency related actions. To this date, they have not lost a single one. Despite the folks that have been continuing to, to focus on Ripple Labs, which which admittedly is a very long drawn out suit. I mean, it was filed back in December of 2020, and we don't have a motion for summary judgment. I've been on this podcast a few times talking about it at least. And even when we get the order, guys, I'll just guarantee you one thing I know for certain is if the SEC wins, it will most certainly be appealed by Ripple Labs to the next level. And if Ripple Labs wins, they will appeal the order as well. The SEC will to take it to the next court. I don't think this is resolving anytime soon, but I guess the, the big news and how this is all playing in is because I referenced the earlier release of the so-called Hinman emails, which I, I referenced earlier. Those have been all over the, the XRP armies, you know, Twitter feed these days, uh, talking about how there was confusion about the status of Ethereum. And Ethereum was referenced as potentially at the time not being a security because it had been, quote unquote, sufficiently decentralized, whatever that means. But aside from that, that doesn't really affect Ripple directly, right? There aren't documents or at least extensive documents where the SEC is opining on the legal status of XRP. That's there, There's some mild references, but they're not anywhere near as supportive as some of the things they were said about XRP. And, and I guess the, the argument that's being advanced in Ripple Labs to the extent that it relates is this notion of fair notice, okay? There's this defense under the law. It's a constitutional defense that says, if it's too hard to understand the law, if we can't understand what an unregistered securities is, then we, of course, cannot comply with it. It would be unconstitutional for you to bring an enforcement action when it's not capable of being known. 
There's major problems with that, okay? One of which is that we know from the SEC's own documents that they obtained from Ripple Labs that their own lawyers advised them that these things were potentially securities. So it's pretty hard to go forward with a straight face and say, we had no idea these things were securities when your own lawyers are revealing uh, to, or telling you that they could be securities. And then you're taking that document, guys, and you're pushing it towards exchanges to try to get XRP listed. That's how it became You know what would ordinarily be attorney-client privilege would only be between the client and the law firm. They were turning it over to exchanges to say, list our token. Mm. Here's some arguments why it might not be a security, but we kind of think it is. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Holy. So there's no way to run from that. I mean, listen, so there's been a lot of discovery, a lot of rulings. We're going to get an order on it. I don't expect it to resolve it, like I said, because there's going to be appeals. But at the end of the day, 
The securities laws in the United States are fact specific. So even if you get an order that says XRP in the original token sale is in fact a investment contract, it was unlawful, Garlinghouse and Larson have to pay a ton of money back and have to be disgorged of any profits. It's just for that particular sale and token, right? It's not, it gives us some precedent, right, for other things, but it wouldn't apply retroactively to everyone else who issued an ICO. There'd have to be separate actions filed against all those different folks. So it would be good, right, to the extent that it gives you clear precedent. But, you know, in some of these other tokens, they didn't do some of the egregious allegations that Larson and Garlinghouse are being accused of, like literally intervening in the spot market. One of the allegations in Ripple Labs case is that. The SEC found documents that they would go and prop up the price whenever there was a sell-off and also pump the price to attract retail attention. That's the SEC's allegation. And they put forward documents to support it. Could some of that be used? Let's say they do get a ruling. Let's say they don't appeal it. Could they then take that and use it as they're fighting some of these exchanges to say, look, this token is just like these other 10 tokens on your exchange and they're all security. So like, stop it. Are. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> listen, if they have a ruling from a federal court judge finding implicitly that a certain token or asset is a security, yeah. and then they turn around and file a lawsuit against an exchange, it's pretty easy for that issue to be have been resolved in the other forum, right? Mm-hmm. This underlying issue about what the thing is, is precedential and has been resolved by another court. But you got to remember, the Coinbase lawsuit, so we can, we can get into it, some of the, the, the allegations, but it's really three parts. And this is the the thing that I think it would be helpful for the listeners to understand. The Coinbase suit alleges, number one, okay, that they have this Coinbase Earn program where they're using the proceeds of staked assets and they're paying effectively a yield. And the SEC is saying that itself, that activity is in fact a security. It's an investment contract and you can't do that. The second part of the suit is you're listing all these various different tokens and you're aiding and abating the sale and facilitating the sale of these things. And those things that you're selling are, in fact, securities. The third argument that they're making is that you as an exchange itself, okay, you are not properly registered. You don't have the proper qualifications and accreditations to be an exchange, a broker-dealer, a clearinghouse. You don't have the proper registration statements. So it's really like three parts to that core argument. And any one of them in my opinion, is very bad for Coinbase if they prevail on any of those theories. Let's talk about the staking in a little bit more detail. So they're acting on behalf, like anybody can go out there and stake coins. And I'm I'm just going to try to argue the the counterpoint here, and then I'm going to let you uh, take it from there, Hoddle or Joe. If I have, I think the number's around like $50,000 worth of ETH. If I have like around $50,000 of ETH, and I've got uh, a lot of coding experience. I guess I could stand up my my own stake to validate transactions and earn yield with my own, you know, setup here at my house. Because that's such a high threshold for for most investors, they're outsourcing that to exchanges to do that on their on their own behalf. You know, when I'm looking at a stock, let's say it's Apple stock. I don't have a choice whether I'm going to collect the dividend or not. I'm going to get the dividend if I hold that particular stock. With Ethereum, that's not the case. Like if I'm holding Ethereum and I don't stake it, I don't collect any yield. But if I do decide to stake it and put it to work, I am collecting the yield. So 
it is slightly different from like the mechanics of how you're collecting the yield there. Like you're not guaranteed a yield unless you're doing certain engineering functions. Right. And so, like, I guess I'm trying to look at it from the SEC's vantage point of like how they're saying that's like a security when it, it is a little bit different, the, the mechanics of it. The mechanics are different, right? There are, depending on which asset you're talking about, there's different mechanisms and, and vehicles through which they can do it. But overall, I think the SEC's issue is this um, the very activity of doing the back end, right? Staking it yourself through chain. They're saying that the customers are relying on you to do that technical part of it. Mm-hmm. And that then, you know, Coinbase is taking a uh, commission on that. Uh, as alleged in the SEC complaint, it's somewhere between 25 to 35%. So you wouldn't even get the amount, the same amount, a commensurate amount, if you were doing it natively on yourself, right? They're, they're skimming off the top. So that's a concern, right? You built a business model off of being a middleman and doing, doing the hard part for them and then taking a portion of that and re- refunding it back. But the other problem from the SEC standpoint, if you read their complaint, is that they're saying, well, you're putting this out into the marketplace and you're encouraging people to stake your assets there. And in many cases, they're offering yields higher than they would natively on chain. How does that work? Right. Like that, that's an interesting little wrinkle in it. If you, it's not the same as if you were to go out and do it on your own, some through some back end, maybe pooling of assets or issuing loans, somehow they're monetizing that beyond what the native protocol yield would be. And they're taking a commission out. How is that possible? There. Yeah. Without rehypothecation, how is that possible? Well, no, they are they are rehypothecating in the Ethereum ecosystem. So the minute you stake your ETH, uh, you get a proxy token. You know, well, you you don't get one, but you have to go to the market to get one. A proxy token called staked ETH. So if you can prove <laughs> that you've staked your ETH, you get a proxy token called STE. And so basically, they just immediately rehypothecated all of the staked ETH, and it's a massive problem in Ethereum. If the STE peg ever unwinds, it's a catastrophe, essentially. Yeah, I'm, I'm like mouth wide. I yeah. can't even like comprehend what you guys just said. That's insane. This, listen to this part. This is from allegation 319 of the Coinbase <laughs> complaint. Running a validator node is often expensive. For This is the SEC's allegation. They say it's often expensive due to the cost of the equipment and the software needed to stake. But through the Coinbase staking program, investors are paid those expenses and or avoid paying those expenses. Because Coinbase operates its own validator nodes to earn and pay investor rewards. For example, CGI, Coinbase's February 21st, 2023 annual report on a Form 10K filed with the SEC states, quote, staking independently requires a participant to run their own hardware, software, and maintain close to 100% uptime. We provide a service known as delegated proof of stake, which reduces the complexities of staking. Similarly, Coinbase acknowledged on its website that becoming a validator is a major responsibility and requires a fairly high level of technical knowledge. The reason all that allegation is in there, right, is because the whole core of the Howey analysis, the core of the securities analysis is that you're making money, you're getting an expectation of profit based on the hard work of others. And Coinbase is going out in the marketplace and putting on their 10K that they're doing all this hard work for you. They're making it much more simple. They're doing it and you can expect a yield. Guys, that's that is Howie. That's that's a security. That's the whole point. Don't buy the orange groves directly. Buy shares of our orange grove, and we'll give you some of the profit. That yeah, is a security. So, so I'm still battling this, right? So when I think of a security, there's employees that are inside that corporate veil that are performing mm-hmm. a pro. They're building a product or they're making a service, right? That's adding value to a customer, right? 
This would be equivalent to let's just let's just go to like Robinhood, right? And let's say I I own Apple stock and I have it on the Robinhood. The productivity that's happening inside of Apple, the company, and let's just say Apple's paying a dividend. That is earnings, that is profit that's being generated by Apple employees that's then being paid to an owner, which would be me. In this example that we're talking about with Coinbase, this would be like me taking that Apple stock, sticking it on Robinhood, them rehypothecating and doing all these financial gymnastics, which are completely independent of Apple, completely independent of Apple. To create a yield by borrowing and lending through a fractional reserve, you know, disaster, but they're doing it and they're creating some type of yield. And then they're paying me that yield from Robinhood. Like Robinhood employees are performing those actions and then paying me, which I see as being very different than Apple's security token or stock or whatever you want to call it in this case. I see those activities as being very different. Yeah, I mean they they go into pretty fine detail, right, on how that that the actual native staking on chain and what you see with the Coinbase Earn program are very different things. For example, there's a quote in here in the complaint that talks about how Coinbase no longer purports to maintain reserves of stable uh, stakeable assets in and around October of 2022. In response to an FAQ on this website, can you trade or send funds while earning rewards? Coinbase states. You'll typically be able to cash out your cryptocurrency that's earning rewards as you would any other currency. It is not natively staked. Cashing out may be, may be subject to different factors, including not but not limited to your account history, transaction history, and banking history. So th- there's a lot going in uh, under the hood with the management of the assets, where the, the the Coinbase employees, in your example, they are doing things. There are you know, there's pools, they're lending, they're engaging in various different activities. That is not just okay. We're going to stake well, it on chain. So now let me argue with myself. <laughs> so in the example that I described earlier. If Robinhood was performing these functions, I would be paid in dollars from Robinhood employees. I would not be being paid in additional Apple stock from Robinhood employees. And when we look at the Coinbase scenario, you're being compensated in additional ETH that's coming out of the protocol. And stuff that's not coming out of the protocol. That's that's the point. There are (laughs) bonuses for their staking program as well. They're contributing additional crypto from God knows where into the stake services to make it more attractive for customers. Stake, it says called, uh, they offer staked bonuses to participants during special periods. For example, there's a, there's a quote from June, 2022. Stake at least $100 to earn a $10 bonus. We'll deposit $10 in ETH to your account within 45 days. That's it. You don't have to do anything else. That's from a promotional uh, item on Coinbase's website. So that's a customer acquisition marketing mm-hmm. scheme. Yeah. Yeah, which is independent from the protocols payout. They're they're going to have to buy that themselves and then pay that to the customers. And so, if I'm just trying to play devil's advocate, right, and, and I'm looking at this and I'm saying, well, you know, like this is different than stock, like Apple stock, right? Like if I going back to the example that I had with Robinhood, like them paying me or getting something issued out of the company that's like programmatic to issue more stock. Uh, for basically depositing and not moving the equity around is basically why they're paying it out is so that it drives the price up, right? That's the mechanism that's being employed here. I don't know that you've necessarily seen something like that. I think they're I think their better case from if I'm playing the SEC's role is 
to really go after that, there's all these videos of Vitalik, and I'm just going to use ETH as an example. There's plenty of others tokens that we could use as examples, but the ETH one is so well documented with Vitalik. I mean, there's there has to be five or six videos that just clearly demonstrate that this was an equity from day one as they were, you know, using Bitcoin to basically finance them standing it up. They they're stating that they have marketing teams, that they have this many uh, coders. Like I would think that that would be such a stronger case to say, hey Coinbase, you have a, a listed equity token here on your platform and you can't have those because you're not even a registered exchange. Don't don't you think that that's a much stronger case than the staking piece? It it almost seems like it's an attack on proof of of stake. I I would agree with that, but keep in mind that's in the suit. I mean, they list numerous assets. Okay. Forget the earn program, forget the staking program. In this particular suit, they list numerous assets they believe are in fact unregistered securities and Coinbase is selling them. So that that's part of the suit. That's the first category we were talking about. And then they have even a broader category, which is, okay, let's assume that just one of these things is in fact a security. Uh, you have to register in the United States as an exchange. Mm-hmm. And that falls within our jurisdiction as the SEC. And you never did that. Yeah. Never properly registered as an exchange. Right. It's like a, it's a massive complaint. When we, I think it was on uh, the Bitcoin layer talking with uh, Dr. Jeff Ross about this and you could have filed a complaint like you're suggesting where it's very narrow. It's just just going after the staking or just going after a few tokens or you know just going after certain, you know, a uh, small amount of their business. This is the whole gamut, right? They filed the complaint literally questioning their right to exist as an exchange. Yeah. It could not get more broad than this. The only way I think you could tailor a more broad complaint is if you added in a every token on the platform that could even potentially be a security. And and just to clarify, it seems to me that it's not necessarily an attack on proof of stake, but it's an attack on delegated proof of stake. Is that correct? And also, I think, Preston, when you go back to the the initial ICO for Ethereum, it's my belief, Joe, you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here, but that it falls outside the statute of limitations. Right. It is. I mean, yeah, the SEC will probably not be going after them right for the original ICO launch of Ethereum. But I do think ETH2, is there something there? Could they go after them for the transition to proof of stake? That's an interesting. Yeah, I mean, that that's the question. I mean, yeah. so one of the emails that we got, it was kind of fascinating. I tweeted it out. It talked about how, you know, their current understanding of how Ethereum is presently constituted back in 2018. They didn't think it was a security, right? Based on our current understanding of how this thing is constructed. They're commenting in all those emails and Director Hidman is opining on proof of work Ethereum, right? It's changed radically. And then the question becomes, well, why did it change? Who is leading the change? Does someone control the change? And that's where you have potentially securities laws get involved. And if the folks that were leading the change and were, you know, cultivating that that upgrade and they were they still to this day maintain that and it doesn't work without the man behind the curtain making it work, that raises issues. And I think that's why they've tried to left leave the door somewhat open. You've noted like in public statements, Gary Gensler has been far more reluctant than some of his predecessors to speak on the legal status of Ethereum today as presently constituted. That is, in my opinion, intentional. Yeah, I, I, sure. do th- yeah. I, I do think Ethereum has potentially the most political cover of any one of the cryptocurrencies or the altcoins, right? But it still is not, you know, it's not bulletproof, essentially. Like there are a lot of people that think that, you know, what Hinman said back in 2018 is like case closed, that's gospel. Like to Joe's point, it is not. Can we go back to what you said a moment ago, Hoddle, about the delegated proof of stake, right? And I think it's a fair point. 
that you have to distinguish between proof of stake and an attack on proof of stake versus delegated proof of stake. But okay, just to steel man the other side, do you believe? I mean, what do you think as a market participant? Uh, the natural way this this goes, I, I view it more as as delegated proof of stake being dominant as long as it's allowed to be. Right? Why yeah. do I have to mess with all this? I'm going to put it all onto Coinbase and they'll do it for me, and I can just you know take a dividend just like Preston says and use the familiarity with the equity market to, in the same way with with Ethereum. So to me, attacking delegated proof of stake is an indirect attack on proof of stake. Uh, no, I, I I absolutely agree. And I, I think that, you know, running a an Ethereum archival node or doing something like proof of stake is just it's well beyond the technical capability of the average market participant, even possibly the above average market participant. I mean, I don't even think Vitalik Buterin runs a full archival Ethereum node, right? So that's pretty telling when the creator of the coin doesn't even, you know, run a node that's validating the entire chain state. Mark Cuban and his son run one, evidently, is what he told me. Uh, it's a very it's a very expensive yeah. proposition to run one. I mean, it, in order to be an Ethereum validator, you believe that, Preston? Do you believe that? Oh yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> in order to be an Ethereum validator, it's you need about a twenty thousand dollar computer and you know fifty four thousand dollars worth of Ethereum. So you're looking at seventy five grand before you get in the door. So I hope you have enough money for a nice Mercedes. Otherwise, you're not going to be a full participant on the Ethereum uh, network or ecosystem. Let's transition and talk to the points made on Binance. So there's a temporary restraining order. Joe, get into this. Explain why this makes the Binance situation very different than the Coinbase situation and just get into some of the nuances of that. Yeah. So this is the blockbuster of the week, right? If there's one story in the legal crypto world and the market world as a whole, you, and we need to get to maybe some of the market effect with the uh, CZ having to defend the BNB token. We'll talk about that in a moment. But so the one story is this this issue with Binance. When you normally file a lawsuit, guys, you file the complaint, you you walk up, or actually, you don't walk up to the courthouse anymore. You just file it online. You, you get the stamp and then you go work and serve the defendant. And the whole process at the get-go is very slow moving. It can take months before you even get service on the defendant. And then after you get service, it can take months before the defendant even appears, and they may file a motion to dismiss, and that might get briefed. I mean, I've had cases where my clients have, have been sued, and really, the case doesn't even get moving for a year after the suit is filed. Literally one year after it's filed, we finally start getting into discovery and moving. This is the exact opposite. This is rocket docket. This is, they filed the complaint, and within days, they had a TRO on file, which is an order. It's a, a seeking immediate relief from the court basically saying you need to act right now because Americans' deposits in Binance are at risk. We are nervous that the, the control of Binance US is really under the control of a foreign national in CZ who has openly flouted US jurisdiction, who has used it as his piggy bank, moved funds in and out of the United States, um, who has basically retained control over all of the assets. There's allegations in this thousand page submission that was put forward with tons of citations and documents that, that show you know, CZ had most of the shards or access to most of the shards for all the crypto assets held by Binance US. He was a signatory on tons of accounts belonging to Binance US. And even though openly he's saying, no, we don't have any control. It's an independent exchange that has no association with the broader Binance.com. They put forward compelling evidence, which the judge even cited saying, there's a lot of evidence here that they put forward showing that there was substantial control by the international of the domestic. In particular, one, one thing I'll just highlight is that they actually showed almost a billion dollars 
flowing out of the United States from certain accounts that were supposedly belonging to Binance US in March and April. What happened in March and April? Obviously, there was that banking issues, and there's there's allegations about Signature in here and some other U.S. banking institutions. So a lot of stuff there that needs to be figured out. So the SEC files this emergency relief. They say, we need to be heard immediately in court. We need to safeguard U.S. deposits. We need a full accounting. We need to freeze all of Binance's assets. We need to have a receiver in there to look at things, to know if the data we're being given about what, what assets are held and you know the, the balances of certain accounts is in fact true. And we need to do it now. So they filed this. It was presented yesterday before the judge. Binance did the smart thing. They conceded a lot, saying, like, we'll agree to make sure this is all in the hands of U.S. persons. We'll agree that we're going to have an accounting at some point of all the U.S.-based entities. But they fought on what they needed to fight on. So what do you think they needed to fight on? They don't want any of CZ's personal assets froze, and they don't want the international frozen. Those are the key issues that they fought on vigorously, and it was smart. So it all resolved yesterday with the judge saying, well, look, you guys agree on a lot. There's some issues that need to be carved out and resolved. I'm going to refer you to a magistrate judge, which is also a federal court judge, but someone who is, uh, is not appointed by, uh, not appointed uh, in the same stature as the district court judge, and they can go handle this discovery dispute and try to come back and come up with some agreed order rather than the judge throwing down an order to freeze all these things and to handle this. Let's just see if you can agree through a mediation to some consent decree, some consent order to safeguard assets. That's much, where it stands. How much time did they give them for that? 48 hours. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, 
The more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Wow. Okay, so this is going to air tomorrow. Yeah, Yeah. okay. Wow. So it it seems like they're going to play nice so that they can protect those two major interests that they have on the international front and CZ's personal interests. Where does it go after that, Joe? Like, does this get really messy? I think it's going to get extraordinarily messy. And let me just say, there are a couple things that that I think, and we talk about this quite frequently, Hoddle, that really sort of, when I, when I saw the notation on the docket, my uh, my eyebrows perked up because I'm like, okay, something's going on here. They're a little nervous. There was an appearance filed by a notable criminal defense attorney in this mm-hmm. case, which the SEC case is civil. But what happens frequently in a lot of civil litigation is that you have a criminal attorney in the background. Most of the mm-hmm. time, you don't even want them to file an appearance, but they're looking over what records are produced. They're advising the client to say, listen, if you turn over these records, you could face criminal liability. And sort of mm-hmm. they're in the shadows saying, my one job is to make sure this an indictment does not come. And that stems from, I think, an earlier report a couple months ago that the DOJ, the Department of Justice, was split on whether to indict CZ and indict Binance. Mm-hmm. So my guess is, and I'll just qualify this with some supposition, but I think the DOJ has looked at this rather closely. I think the DOJ, uh, which typically would move before a civil organization, a civil uh, complaint, they would they would file the DOJ indictment, and the civil would sort of take a backseat to the DOJ. I think that they they smell something here. They think there's something we need to look at, but I don't think they have all the records. Mm. And my guess is they greenlit the civil enforcement actions to put pressure on Binance to get as much records as possible. And then the SEC, as they can normally, they can do a criminal referral. So I, I would not I would not at all take off the table the potential of a criminal indictment at some point in the future. I can't say it's guaranteed. I think you need to get records. But to your point, how does it all play out? It plays out where the SEC will push as hard as they can to do a full accounting of all records. And at some point, because there's been commingling of assets, and that's we didn't mention that clearly, but there's this overarching allegation that the Binance.com entity has commingled assets with the US entity. If I'm a federal judge and I hear that and I see substantial evidence of that, Hoddle and Preston, I open the door to everything. If you're mixing and matching across accounts, across entities, the other side gets to see it all. 
And my guess is it will come to a head when at some point they will show the trail from Binance.us to the international and say, we need to see behind the curtain over there what's going on with the international. And that's kind of a black box, right? That What is behind the curtain at Binance.com? But I would you think know, to me, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say uh, to me, when I saw the, uh, the Reuters article about the, the department department of justice being split, my immediate first thought was this thing is a psyop to get this guy on us soil so that they can arrest him. Like that was what I immediately thought. Maybe that's too, that's overtly conspiratorial, but I think there is a there there and there's definitely criminality at Binance. I mean, that, that seems obvious to everybody who's been paying attention. Well, you can say things I can't, but uh, <laughs> I'll just tell you, uh, you just know, my like, personal opinion, Joe, just my personal opinion, yeah. not a legal opinion. Yeah. I'll just tell you, like, you know, if you're in these financial uh, cases, right. I mean, particularly financial crimes, it's really important to get a full accounting of the records. And I think Preston, I know you were really frustrated. Like, how is this guy SBF not in handcuffs? Like immediately after the whole thing blew up <laughs> and it was obvious, everybody knows what was going on. How is he not indicted and in, in doing a perp walk? Okay. And the answer is because they want to have all the records. They don't yeah. move off half cocked. They want to have every single piece of paper so that when somebody's in handcuffs, they know I got my standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There's no no way we lose this case. How about the BAM trading and BAM management part of this, Joe? Yeah, well, that's that's the US entity. I mean, that's the whole whole basis of the suit. I mean, the US entity is in the documents that have been released. It's basically a front for the international. Well, I guess where I'm going is more in the them trading against customer funds. Oh, the wash the, trading. Yeah, yeah, the wash trade. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. So that's the entity, right? The band trading is, is the, the entity we're really talking about, Binance US effectively. And the shocking allegations. And the, the best part of it, guys, is this it's not just the allegations. It's not just to get a complaint and well, let's see what evidence they have. They put forward hundreds of pages of chat logs of records internally saying, you know, we're running an effing unregulated exchange here in the United States. The chat records from the, the senior leadership of Binance US saying there's wash trading going on in our platform. There aren't safeguards in place to prevent this. Can we do something about this? Can we address it? And it's not years ago. Like some of these allegations and documents are from May and April of 2023. And it's shocking to me that, you know, they've known this for years. They've known this was a problem. CZ himself, if you follow him on Twitter, he goes out and says, our customers want to know there's not wash trading on the platform. And now we know there's internal records that there is. And they didn't have safeguards in place. They didn't have surveillance agreements. And by the way, this plays perfectly into the SEC's hands for the denial of the Bitcoin spot ETF. Mm -hmm. Let me explain why. Because their core, I think Hal alluded to this earlier. Their core argument is you got one of the exchanges that has massive amount of spot buying of Bitcoin and spot selling, and it's a black box. They're not even making sure the trades are real and legitimate. So yeah, this will be exhibit A in that action. Now, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I wanted to touch on that as well. We're a long way off from a Bitcoin spot ETF. And what it's going to take is essentially a well-regulated US entity that is Bitcoin only that has significant volumes. And until we get something like that, hopefully several of them, but until we get something like that, you're not going to see a, a spot ETF anytime soon, because like Joe alluded to, and as we all know, as you know, market participants here, this, this stuff is the wild west, right? And if you're operating at a, uh, you know, a foreign exchange, not only are you in the wild west, you're in the wild west saloon and it's past midnight and everybody's got their six shooters out and you're about to be killed because there's no rules on these exchanges, none at Can all. We 
Can we talk about that for a second? And I love your take, Preston, on this. And this is the one question I had for you tonight. Okay. <laughs> we as Bitcoiners, and, and we're passionate about the asset, we, th- we understand the importance of Bitcoin. It's frustrating to me for so long that we're so deep into this thing and you don't have a real solid Bitcoin exchange in the United States. And I know there are exceptions and, and people don't bite my head up because I know you, you can think of two or three that are Bitcoin only, right? But we've heard allegations tonight about the prime trust, right? You've heard other issues in the past recently develop about the prime trust. We can get into those, but why do you guys think that we've had so much difficulty having, uh, you know, we talked about this, a GDAX type real API backend exchange for Bitcoin in the United States uh, after all these years. Yeah. I mean, everybody that I know, you know, who's worked at Kraken says that Jesse Powell is a, you know, pretty hardcore Bitcoin maximalist. He's one of our guys, but the lure of all of the money coming in from these illiquid Ponzi scheme tokens is it's just too great. And, you know, if everybody else was going to do it, then you might as well do it too. And you might as well make hay while the sun shines. And, and that's been sort of the, the modus operandi for this entire space. And, you know, it, it was good business for the people who could get it while it was going on. But, you know, ultimately we were kneecapping ourselves as an, as an industry. And the people like Brian Armstrong, who were running Coinbase, started off very strong Bitcoin only. And over time, these, these lures of adding new coins and suckering in retail investors. I mean, the earn program was basically a brainwashing tool where they would pay you to read propaganda about illegal, illiquid securities. I mean, when you spell it out like that, it's pretty damning, right? And uh, that that was that game was going on for a long time. And like I said before, it was basically a game of three card Monty with the general public. And those days are over now. So it is time for everybody to take a good hard look in the mirror. I mean, this is to me, this reminds me of the moment post dot com bubble collapse when the real you know next gen companies are going to be built, when the the Googles and the Facebooks are going to come out of this thing. And that's exciting to me as as a Bitcoiner, but. The people that succeed in this industry, and I'm using that in air quotes, if you're listening to the podcast, the people that succeed in this industry are going to be people that focus on Bitcoin, not people that focus on illegal securities. Very similar message to what Sailor's been saying for probably the last six months to a year is people are way overestimating crypto and way underestimating Bitcoin. I think it's on full display to echo your point, Hoddle. Joe, I think when I look at that, you know, you have Fidelity, which is a major legacy financial organization that is now allowed buying Bitcoin. You can't withdraw it. They're going to self-custody it. Now available to the general public that have Fidelity accounts. They are the odd man out on Wall Street compared to everybody else. I think I think everybody else on Wall Street is still looking at this like what a bunch of degenerates trading imaginary money, acting like it's going to compete with the dollar. We have total control over the financial world. And if these kids think that they're going to like program some fake magic internet money and compete with the dollar, like we're going to snuff them out with style and enjoy every second of it. I actually think that they find it entertaining to think that a Bitcoiner could even remotely think that they could compete with legacy Wall Street finance. Uh, I, I think that's I think, that's the that's the mindset. I think you're absolutely right, and I, I think to people that hold that view, I would say that you know if I was in your position, I would feel the same way probably. But the world is changing, 
I mean, you know, Secretary Yellen came out the other day and said that we're planning on the dollar essentially losing its reserve currency status. That's that's a pretty crazy statement by Treasury. I mean, that's nuts. That's you nuts. Know, I can't believe I heard something like that come out of her mouth. But obviously, she's right. And she's being a realist about what's coming. Right. And I think as we look, uh, you know, towards the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and obviously China is rising, they're ascending while we're descending, there's going to be a conflict between the superpowers at some point. And when you look at these conflicts, you know, in the modern day, they're not going to look like World War II. They're not going to be like the 20th century conflicts. These are going to be hybrid wars. And hybrid wars are cyber, they're biological, and guess what? They're, they're economic. And our traditional financial system is, is a joke. It's full of holes. I mean, fr- from a cybersecurity perspective, you can just come in there and do whatever you want, basically. So we need an upgrade to make this TradFi system more robust. And I think the thing that is non-intuitive at this point and still very contrarian, that's the thing I love, by the way, Preston, we still have our edge. It's all these years later, we're still the contrarians in the room. We're still the guys saying, no, it's just Bitcoin. You can focus on Bitcoin and the underlying Bitcoin technologies. I think in the coming decade, we're going to be able to use these underlying Bitcoin technologies to not only strengthen Bitcoin in the world, but also strengthen the traditional financial system, create a robust financial system that's able to withstand attacks. And these attacks are coming from adversaries outside of America. So if you're the type of person thinking, hey, it's never going to come from me, I'm at the center of Rome and this is the Roman Empire, the winds of change shift mightily. They come for you fast, much faster than you're expecting. So it's time to hop. To to that point, Joe, to, to, to Hoddle's point, when we look at the legacy financial, the JP Morgans, the Bank of Americas, all of them, right? For the last 40 years, anybody who actually has real buying power that's secured that buying power, either in equities or bonds, the value has, has performed. They haven't seen it get eroded for 40 years until COVID. Mm-hmm. From, from COVID till now, they've actually started to see, and I've, I've called it deflection in the bedrock of finance. Actually, Saylor is the one that, uh, that initially started saying this, and then I've just been chirping it since. But they finally started this to see the deflection, and it hasn't been enough for, for them to be shaken out of their chair to act like the, the holders of all this buying power, the people that are truly controlling a large portion of the buying power. They haven't gone to your traditional Wall Street banks and said, something is seriously wrong. We need a solution to this right? at all. And so there's no reason for legacy Wall Street to take anything serious. I think we're on the precipice of that changing in the coming three to five years. Like, I think it's about to get disgustingly volatile, especially in the bond market. And I think what's going to make it really hard for people is I think you're going to have a total melt up in equities in the coming five years. Like, you're going to see prices in equities that you can't even imagine, especially from like a PE standpoint. Like, if you're using traditional PE ratios, like, you might as well just throw those things in the trash can because they're going to. They're going to be in multiples that you like make your eyes bleed because that's how these things play out from a currency standpoint, which is only going to add more confusion for a lot of legacy folks as to like where they need to position themselves for the changeover in currency. But in the bond market, it's going to be extremely evident that something is melting down. And I love your chart that you've been posting where you basically take the equity market and instead of putting dollars on the bottom, you put long duration bonds on the bottom because <laughs> I think it's a really interesting and neat chart to look at. It, have you looked at it recently? I haven't it's looked absurd. at it recently. Oh my gosh. It, it's absurd. It's just exploding, uh, right? 
Yeah, no, I wish I could share it. But let, let me ask you a question, okay, for both of you. The consensus view, I think, right now, and I don't know if this is your your dear two views, but the consensus view is that you're sort of in the the late stages of the bear market here. You're building a base in Bitcoin and and we're going to be heading much higher over probably the next year beyond that after the halving, if you believe cycle theory, that sort of thing. I don't, but let's put that aside. Let's just assume we're, we're nearing the end of a bear market or longer consolidation. And I don't think these cases are going to resolve at any point in the near future. I think it will carry over into 2024, potentially into 2025 and thereafter. Do you think this changes the dynamics of the altcoin Bitcoin market? Are we going to get another Bitcoin bull market where... Uh, you know, you have the alts popping off again and you track capital and dumb money into the alts. Uh, I know that we have a friend, obviously, Brad Mills, who talks about very, very vocal. He's been saying for like the better part of two years that he thinks there will never be another altcoin bubble, that it's dead. I've heard you hodl say things that you think there's going to be an AI altcoin bubble or, or identity altcoin bubble. Identity. Yeah. Identity. That's right. What do you think? Do you think that this is, is meaningful, all this legal BS or where, where do you see it? Well, I thought about this quite a bit, actually, when these actions started coming down. And I, I think that, uh, unfortunately, my take on this is that there will be an alt season. It will exist largely outside of America, largely outside of developed markets. Right. So, I mean, Andreessen Horowitz announced that they're moving some operations to London. Uh, you know, London is another financial hub in the world that's you know part of the developed world. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of the people that are going to be getting fleeced in this next cycle are in the global south. And, you know, that makes me really sad because I'm already starting to see American investors operate out of these Caribbean entities so that they can take part in these kinds of things, basically unencumbered. So, yeah, I think, unfortunately, you're going to end up in this situation where, like, much of the world is still hooked on these decentralized Ponzi schemes, and there's not a whole hell of a lot that we can do about it. So I do believe that you're going to see these things pump yet again. Now, there's going to be some energy where, inside of America, at least, some of the people that are smart, sober, and rational will wise up and they will either leave the space or they will double down and refocus efforts on being Bitcoin only. And you're already seeing a lot of the people that, you know, I consider to be more fly by night moving from crypto into the new trendy stuff like AI, right? Uh, you can take a GPU farm that you were using to mine cryptocurrency and you can use it to do AI stuff. So it's a real easy phase shift for these guys. I think that we're going to get rid of a lot of the bad elements, but I think unfortunately the bad elements are going to go overseas and they're going to prey on the underbanked in emerging markets. And that's going to be like a moral tragedy. And I will continue to speak up against it every time I see it because I don't think it's right. And if you're an investor, I, I think that that's something that, you know, should weigh on your conscience and you, you should actually give heavy consideration to. I agree with everything Pottle just said. And I would say that the primary marketing for this is going to be Bitcoin is X price, which is way too expensive for you to ever make any kind of money in it. And but this token that I just made is five cents and it could go to 25 cents or a dollar like in two months. Like that marketing pitch, how many times I talked to people said that basically same thing like, mm -hmm. oh, I, I wish I would have got into Bitcoin seven years ago or eight years ago. It's just too expensive. I can't afford one of those. Like how many times I personally heard that? And I just, just like, oh my God, my head hurts. It's a, it's a lottery. It's a lottery pitch, right? And I mean, yeah. I like to play the lottery too. I love when the lottery gets to like a billion dollars and I buy a ticket and for five bucks or whatever, I walk around for two days having this dream of like, 
how great will it be? Oh, when I'm a billionaire, I'll buy a sports team. I'll do this. I'll do that. I walk around for two days thinking this, right? That's fine. That's a cheap dream. Everybody likes to do it. The problem with these altcoin things is that you buy that dream and they suck you in. And then you end up spending way more than five bucks. You spend tens of thousands of dollars. You get your friends and family hooked up into it like it's an MLM. And then all of a sudden your entire reputation and identity and your community are all wrapped up in these things. And if you're part of like the XRP army or something, you're going to fight to defend this because this is you at this point. It feels like you're fighting to defend yourself, not like you're fighting to defend a scam, which is what they're, <laughs> what they're doing in actuality. Wow. Would you both give the same answer? There are rumblings of enforcement actions against VCs that are coming down the pipeline. Would you give the same answer if that if the SEC does end up going forward and filing enforcement actions in the realm of crypto against notable VCs? We'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think that some of the mid-level VCs are easy pickings. I, I don't think these guys are very smart or sophisticated. Well, there's a lot of guys who you know went from being a bartender to a crypto VC. I mean, let's let's just face facts. That's how it was. It was pretty ridiculous. And uh, some of these guys ended up having, you know, their their funds entire AUM on FTX because obviously they've never heard of counterparty risk. These are not serious people. Right. But I think the Andreessen Horowitzes and the Sequoias are going to be harder to go after because these guys know how to keep things at arm's reach. It was never suggested like, you know, what they would do basically is and I'd heard this from friends who were startup founders. You would go in with a great idea for a startup and you would have it back channeled to you that, you know, it really. Oh, yeah, we're not. We're not really thinking about it at this time, but you know, honestly, if there was a token on your roadmap, it would be a lot more interesting, right? And so it's it's sort of this implicit understanding that you need to add a token, and a lot of the impetus was put on the founders in that case. So I think it's gonna be hard to tie it back to the A16Zs of the world. They're they're very sophisticated. So crazy to me, Joe. What's the uh, chances of an asset freeze on Binance for customers? So if somebody's listening to this and they have funds on Binance, like you need to get those off of Binance, right? But uh, well, what are you doing? Don't stop yeah, listening what are you, to the what podcast. You, yeah, <laughs> stop. Hit pause. Go now. Go now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's the probability of something like that through everything you've seen from a legal sense? Is, is that like highly probable coming next? We have heard from Binance that they are on the cusp of losing some of their banking partners and their ability to withdraw. This Binance US, to be clear, their ability to withdraw yeah, dollars in the United States off the Binance US platform. So they're actively encouraging people, get your dollars off. We're going to be probably crypto only. Uh, moving forward. So that's that's one part of it. So if you're talking about the assets on Binance US that are crypto assets, my understanding is if the consent order goes through, it will allow them to withdraw, customers to withdraw crypto assets on the Binance.us platform. And I think the SEC has agreed to that. Now, the if you're thinking a more comprehensive freeze, which I still think is on the table, I th- see that coming down from Binance under two scenarios. Scenario one, which is probably the most probable, is if there is a, an accounting or records, as I mentioned, because of the commingling issue, that identify US-based accounts that are somehow held in, off the US platform in the in custody of Binance.com, the international. I think a judge would look at that and say, wait a second, this is outside of the United States. We need to get back this money immediately. I'm going to issue an order because they've consented to the court that this needs to be frozen immediately. That will be subject to additional additional records. And I still think the SEC is not confident that they have all the records. 
you know, during the lead up, even as late as June 2nd of, you know, this month, they were, they were getting contradictory information from Binance's lawyers and their auditors about how much assets were actually held by the Binance.us platform. Never a good thing when you're contradicting your own auditors about how many assets you hold on the platform. And that's put forward with some compelling evidence by the SEC. So the scenario number one is just to recap is if there are new records that show commingling between international and US. In my opinion, though, the bigger issue and the more likely scenario where you see a total freeze of the assets is if there are some documents or evidence that is uncovered through this process that is referred to the DOJ and the DOJ acts on a criminal basis, that I would rate it. If they move forward with an indictment, a very high probability that those assets are totally frozen. You know, if you're using these platforms, right, and you understand there's an active investigation and there's a federal judge compelling violence on a daily basis to turn over records, you can't sleep good at night having any money on that exchange. Uh, and I'm not trying to be, you know, a fear monger here or promote a bank run. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying, practically speaking, it's an uncertain situation where it can develop very quickly. I mean, look at look at FTX, right? We heard rumors online about FTX and as Hoddle alluded to this back and forth with CZ. And within what? A week, two weeks, it was insolvent, effectively, Hoddle? It was like three days. It was like, it was like three, days. three days. Yeah. It, it seemed like, like a week. Over, like yeah. overnight. And people were flying down to the Bahamas doing sketchy stuff to try and get their money out. I mean, people were trapped, you know, and I mean, you don't want to let that be you. And the cost of self-sovereignty here in this space is like about a hundred bucks, 150 bucks for a good hardware wallet. That's well worth it. If you got, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on one of these exchanges, get yourself a hardware wallet, look up some great tutorials online. Our buddy, uh, Ben, uh, BTC sessions on YouTube does a phenomenal job. Stefan Lavera does a phenomenal job. They'll walk you through it. Go to the cold card website, CoinKite, cold card, buy one, look up a tutorial on YouTube, boom, you're self-sovereign. Easy. Guys, I think we're going to wrap it up there unless you have any other highlights or things that you think we need to cover on this particular topic for right now. Give people a handoff if you guys are good. Give your give yourself a handoff where people can learn more about you or follow your Twitter account. Both are just awesome places for people to learn more. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. Before we do that, one okay. last thing that I that I wanted to cover. Bitcoin, in all of these documents, which there's been a lot of documents and a lot of pages to plow through. Joe, I know you've pretty much plowed mm-hmm. through all of them. Bitcoin is addressed very differently than anything else that is addressed as far as all these tokens. So real fast, if you can just kind of cover for people that are listening to this, the, you know, we only cover Bitcoin on this show for the most part. What would you say to a Bitcoiner that's, that's seeing all this and saying, well, my God, this sounds really scary? The first thing I would say is that just just look at how Bitcoin came into being. And that's the big distinction between what the SEC has said versus all these other tokens. They lay out very carefully in the Coinbase suit and in the Binance suit about how all of these things are brought to market with promises of expected return. They're brought to market in a very centralized way, a very top-down controlled way. That is the complete antithesis of how Bitcoin came to market and how Satoshi developed this in in she, they developed it in a open source decentralized way where everybody had a right. There was no pre-mine. Everybody could have came and mined on the chain. So really, you see very different origins and very different incentive-based structures. So the SEC in statements that are now public, in versions of the speech that Director Hinman gave that we alluded to earlier, he speaks in a, in a very uh, praiseworthy way about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is very different from all these other things. And, and how it came to the marketplace is really key. And that's at the core of what the SEC is about, right? They're 
they're trying to say, we want to make sure that there's no incentive structure here where people can just put this in the market, pump something, make a quick buck and take advantage of customers. Mm. Bitcoin is not that. It's not brought to market to take advantage of people. Yeah, I, I think the way I think about it is, you know, there's been a lot of posturing, especially on Twitter about the crypto guys being like, oh, look at you, you Bitcoiners. We thought you were libertarians. We thought you were free market guys. We thought you were laissez-faire capitalists. And look at you, you're cheering enforcement. Okay. Are you against the free market? And one of the, one of the framings I always say is, listen, free speech is part of a free market. And I don't like your behavior particularly. And so, you know, if you're selling snake oil in the Western town, I'm going to stand next to you and be like, hey, this is gasoline. This is formaldehyde. You shouldn't drink this. Don't drink it. This guy is scamming you. Right. And I think that, you know, it's easy for them to say that they're coming for Bitcoin next. And, you know, there are going to be some battles. There are many battles left with the U.S. government over the fate of Bitcoin. I think one of the battles is, you know, the curtailment of mining emissions, potential different tax rates for mining electrical use. I think there are potential different tax rates coming for you as an individual on cap gains. I think that there's a strong desire uh, to dox all of the coins and all of their whereabouts and that you may have to self-report that in the future, both for national security interest and for the interest of taxation from the IRS. There are many battles that Bitcoiners are going to fight with many different regulatory agencies. Some of them we're going to lose. Some of them we're going to win. But eventually, Bitcoin is going to win the war and Bitcoin is here to stay. Bitcoin is a major part of this century. And not just for America, but for the world, because this is a global phenomenon. One, one thing real quick, Preston, this is the, the quote I'll just read for the audience here. This is from that speech I referred to, Director Himmon's speech years ago, right? And this is the SEC talking about Bitcoin. He says, and so when we look at Bitcoin, we do not see a third party whose efforts are a key determining factor in the enterprise. The value of Bitcoin turns on the efforts of decentralized miners and independent market participants' assessments of an open source payment mechanism. Applying the disclosure provisions of securities laws in this situation would seem to add little value. So he's basically saying that they get it, right? They understand how Bitcoin's different from all the rest of this stuff. We know Gary gets it. I mean, he's literally taught the class at MIT and people can watch the class at MIT of everything that's ever been said about it and his thoughts on Ethereum and some of the others and how they don't pass the Howey test. And this was Sailor's. Sailor's interview with Raul Powell was just incredible to look back and think that that was two years ago and just how on point he was with respect to how this was going to shake out eventually. You're both uh, just too optimistic about what, what's coming in store. I'll just say this. I come down far more. I think this is going to be really impactful, guys. This, this litigation is going to have far-reaching consequences. And I think everybody's looking at this saying it's FUD in the crypto universe. And they're saying it's not going to be a big deal. It is a big deal. It will have... Their U.S. is, is not the only game in town, right? But they're the 900-pound gorilla in financial markets. And many economies, many regulators globally will follow the U.S.'s lead. So the folks in the crypto verse that are, have incentives to say this doesn't matter, I'll take the other side of that bet. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Joe. All right, guys, uh, give a handoff to uh, Twitter or any other uh, things that you guys want to highlight. You can find me on uh, you find me on Twitter, American Auto Eight, or I'm on uh, I'm on Noster a lot these days. Noster is a really cool new emerging decentralized social network that you should definitely check out if you haven't checked out so far. So you can find me on there too, and uh, give it to Joe. Yeah, I'm also on Twitter all the time at Joe Carlosari. You can uh, contact me on there if you have sort of 
fun macro or uh, legal issues, uh, I would prefer you contact my firm, right? I am a litigator practicing the space. If you have a litigated dispute, uh, you can Google my name, find my firm's website. I'm happy to help anyone. I represent a ton of Bitcoin miners, people building on Bitcoin, people involved in litigated disputes involving Bitcoin. So I have about half my practice now adjacent to, to Bitcoin. So I always want to help Bitcoiners and uh, I accept Bitcoin. So I love that. I love that. Yeah. We'll have a link to that in the show notes and we'll have a link to HODL social uh, connections on the show notes as well. Gentlemen, we need to do this more often. I really enjoyed this chat and thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Preston. Thanks, Preston. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.